Good afternoon, everyone. It's nice to see you. I'm Brad Wilson, Associate Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions here at Princeton. Uh, this afternoon, uh, we have a lecture in our series on America's founding and future. Uh, our lecturer today is Christine Rosen, fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, where Christine is involved in the project on biotechnology and writes about the history of genetics, the social impact of technology, fertility industry, and bioethics. She's a senior editor of a really uh, terrific quarterly journal uh, titled The New Atlantis, a journal of technology and society, just a, a few years old now. And she is author of Preaching Eugenics, Religious Leaders and the American Eugenics Movement, a history of the ethical and religious debates surrounding the eugenics movement in the United States. That was published by Oxford in 2004. Uh, also, since uh, 1999, she has been an adjunct scholar at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, where she has written about women in the economy, feminism, and women's studies. And Ms. Rosen is co-author uh, with Diana Furthcott-Roth of two books, um, the first pleasingly titled Women's Figures, an Illustrated Guide to the Economic Progress of Women in America, and The Feminist Dilemma, When Success is Not Enough, published in 2001. She's currently working on a book on Christian fundamentalism, which will be published by Public Affairs in January 2006. Please join me in welcoming Christine Rosen. Thank you. I got into a lot of trouble for the title of that other book. Um, I want to thank the James Madison program for inviting me to come speak. There's, it's, it's a true privilege considering the company um, I'm among when I looked at the roster of previous and, and future speakers, so I thank you for the invitation. Well, several years ago, I found myself in the town of Avise in the Champagne region of France. I was visiting the vineyard of a man named Jacques Solos, He's a small champagne maker whose charismatic son, Anselm, now runs the champagne house. When he agreed to show my husband and me around, we expected a little more than a perfunctory tour in tasting, which is generally what you get in the champagne region. Instead, we ended up spending a long and rambling afternoon with Anselm, walking up and down his rows of vines, wandering amid the large oak barrels of the cove, and tasting different bottles of his extraordinary champagne. What became clear to us quickly um, is that Anselm was something of a mad genius. Um, over the years, he's become a cult figure among winemakers and sommeliers in France. And it's clear why when you listen to him talk about how to make champagne. He grasps bunches of grapes, leans in excitedly, and tells you, each grape on each vine must be allowed to express its individuality. Imagine this said on a windy hillside with a very eager Frenchman right in your face. He says its individuality must be allowed to flourish because each grape has a personality. And like a mother hen, he's very watchful of his vines, protective, even hovering, but exercising a light touch with the grapes. He trains the vines in one direction or another and gently and painstakingly hand harvests the fruit every year, aging the wine until it reaches the perfect balance of flavors. 
Every year he reminded us the formula for this changes because it, he must react to these individual grapes. Sometimes he simply sits in the fields and listens to the vines. Now once you get past the notion of a grape having a personality, Anselm's enthusiasm starts to make sense. Of course, it could have been all the champagne we were drinking that day, but his theories aren't widely shared, however. Some growers, he told us, opt for blunter tools. They use elaborate fertilizers to encourage greater growth. They devise complicated chemical formulas to ensure perfect fermentation, all in the effort to force the vines to yield to their own demands of taste. As Anselm put it rather dismissively, these growers show no respect for chance. As I listened to Anselm talk, I was struck, oddly enough, by how his theory of viniculture reminded me of the contemporary debate over genetic testing and reproductive technologies. Like Anselm, many of us who think about these issues take as our starting point a particular approach to life, an approach that begins with the recognition that we have a limited ability to control life and thus should have a healthy respect for the vagaries that chance <coughs> exercises upon it. This could be seen as a conservative approach in many ways because it does recognize the need for limits. Others are more like Anselm's competitors, however. They encourage us to adopt more aggressive tactics to bend life to our will, and they declare it a necessary part of the development of human nature to try to surpass our natural limits and to pursue, as one enthusiast of the reproductive technology revolution has called it, children of choice. When I asked Anselm Solos what measures he took to protect his vines from extremes of weather, from disease, from pests, he gave me a sage look and said, too much control eliminates possibility. And this seems right, at least for champagne. A respect for the capriciousness of life, whether in the amount of rain or sun that will subtly alter the nature of a vine, or perhaps even the genetic tendencies that make one person prone to certain behaviors, but not to others is also a necessary component for experiencing surprise, delight, compassion, acceptance, no matter what form life might eventually take. Our new enthusiasts of genetic technology, I think, have actually got it wrong. Parents shouldn't choose their children. Children should surprise their parents. But surprise is not such a desirable thing these days. As we'll see, surprise, delight, caprice, acceptance are not the vocabulary of the new eugenics. Instead, devotees of the new eugenics invoke the languages of choice and prevention. Children of choice, redesigning humans, remaking Eden, these are just a few of the book titles by proponents of the new eugenics. Supporters of the new eugenics frequently will invoke freedom as the animating influence behind their support for the new eugenics. One recent book is called Liberation Biology. But it is actually choice and prevention that guide them. Choice and prevention, of course, aren't inconsistent with the principles of our modern liberal democracy, and both are frequently invoked as rationales for any number of things, um, the fight against terrorism, for example, or the abortion debate. Both, however, I think suffer from serious weaknesses as guiding philosophies for our genetic age. Now, the earlier incarnation of eugenics reached its logical conclusion in the horrific policies of fascist Germany but the new incarnation of eugenics is actually thriving in the societies where the old eugenics first took root, in liberal democracies. Why is this the case? Well, exploring this, this question, I think, requires that we do two things. The first, we must debunk the myth, still embraced by many, that eugenics and liberal democracy are incompatible. History shows us how well-suited they actually are. The fact that liberal democracies, including our own, now have in place protections against the kind of state-sponsored eugenics popular in the early 20th century 
doesn't mean that we have escaped the siren song of eugenics. It means that we have found new ways to justify our ineradicable desire to improve ourselves. Second, we must trace the three pathways by which eugenics has been rehabilitated, through science, politics, and through the culture. In doing so, I think we can begin to understand why an increasing number of Americans believe that the new eugenics is inevitable and why it is no longer shocking to ask the question, must eugenics be a dirty word? Now, a brief background on eugenics for those of you who aren't as as, uh, excited and interested in it as some of us have been for years. It's a term that means good in birth. And it was coined by a British scientist named Francis Galton in 1883. Galton was a cousin of Charles Darwin. And it described his plan to improve the human race through better breeding. The idea found very fertile soil in the United States in the early 20th century. States passed marriage restriction laws based on eugenics. Congress, relying on the testimony of eugenicists, passed an Immigration Restriction Act in 1924, which placed quotas on the entrance of Southern and Eastern European Jews and Catholics into the country because they feared they'd pollute the nation's so-called germplasm. The science, as you might imagine at this point, was quite crude. Um, So germplasm was the term used to describe the sort of national gene pool. Many states also passed eugenic sterilization laws that led to the forced sterilization, tens of thousands of men and women, and was upheld as constitutional by the United States Supreme Court in the 1927 case Buck versus Bell. Liberal religious leaders, Protestants, Catholics, and Jews, rushed to prove their scientific savvy by embracing eugenics, and many of them preached it to their congregations and lent their names to the major eugenics organizations in this country. Elite institutions and the country's leading philanthropists enthusiastically supported eugenics. Carnegie and Rockefeller money funded, many of, funded much of the eugenics research in this country, And places such as Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Columbia, and other universities offered classes in eugenics. In fact, the well-regarded biologist Edwin Grant Conklin, who was here at Princeton, was an enthusiastic eugenicist. And his textbook, Heredity and Environment in the Development of Men, contained extensive discussion of this new so-called science. So all of this was, in fact, compatible with the progressive bent of liberal democracy at the time. Elites and non-elites alike justified eugenics in democratic terms, Compulsory sterilization, for example, was at various times compared to the government's power to draft men for military service or the requirements of childhood vaccination. Charitable workers called on Americans to discourage the procreation of the so-called feeble-minded to lessen the burden that these people placed on society. In fact, the few voices raised in opposition to eugenics in the early 20th century were largely those of outsiders in this progressive world outsiders who did not share the culture's infatuation with this new science. These were mainly fundamentalist Protestants, conservative Catholics, and Jews. This was the time of the Scopes trial, so this, this, this was a group that was very suspicious of science. The opponents of eugenics made many powerful arguments, often based on the principles of natural law and Judeo-Christian ethics. They also reminded Americans that although disease caused suffering, it also offered opportunities for compassion, and imposed on each of us a duty to care for the weaker members of society. In the end, though, these arguments were not persuasive to the American people. It was the bitter lessons of experience, economic depression, the horrors of Nazi eugenics, and the discoveries of the new science of genetics that eventually caused the public to turn away from eugenics. The end of the old eugenics, in other words, was not the victory of enlightened thinking over benighted ideology, It was the temporary triumph of passing experience over a deeply-reeded hubris. 
Now, it wasn't long before eugenics reemerged. Some people will argue that it never, in fact, died. In 1969, for example, Robert Sinzheimer of the California Institute of Technology said, a new eugenics has arisen. The old eugenics would have required continual selection for breeding of the fit and a culling of the unfit. The new eugenics would permit, in principle, the conversion of all of the unfit to the highest genetic level. The old eugenics, in other words, was all about prevention, preventing the wrong sort of people from reproducing, from immigrating to the United States. The new eugenics would emphasize choice. As Julian Savulescu, the director of the Oxford University Center for Applied Ethics, told the Guardian newspaper recently, in point of fact, we do practice eugenics when we screen for Down syndrome. The reason we don't define that sort of thing as eugenics, as the Nazis did, is because it's based on choice. It's about enhancing people's freedom rather than reducing it. So by 1999, it wasn't a surprise that Robert Edwards, who is one of the developers of the process of in vitro fertilization, could state confidently, Soon it will be a sin of parents to have a child that carries the heavy burden of genetic disease. We are entering a world where we have to consider the quality of our children. We can identify three pathways to this new world. The first pathway is the scientific, the well-known and astonishing array of techniques that allow us to control human reproduction, in vitro fertilization, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis of embryos created through in vitro fertilization, sex selection techniques, and the increasing range of genetic tests for heritable conditions. All of these techniques, and the many more on the horizon, have made our new eugenics technically possible. Now, the second pathway, though, is political, or perhaps legal, if you want to get technical. It's the impact of Roe versus Wade in 1973, a decision which has, in effect, made individual choice and privacy the guiding principles of reproduction and pregnancy. Writing recently in the Washington Post, a former newspaper reporter and mother of a daughter born with Down syndrome noted, the abortion debate is not just about a woman's right to choose whether to have a baby. It's also about a woman's right to choose which baby she wants to have. In addition, the lack of political oversight and regulation of the fertility industry in this country have gone a long way to contributing to American sense that our genetic revolution is inevitable. The third pathway, though, is the one I'm most interested in and hope to hear your thoughts on today, and that's the cultural. Because I think it's here where the misunderstanding of our eugenic past has created a peculiar situation. In coming to terms with our own history of eugenics, we've decided that eugenics is pernicious only when it is imposed coercively by the state. This has freed us up to pursue a form of consumer eugenics, which in practice has contributed to the creation of cultural norms that place great pressure on families to produce so-called healthy children and that have encouraged us to view dependence and disability with an increasing degree of suspicion. The new rehabilitators of eugenics are a diverse group, and many, I think, would, would resist being called rehabilitators of eugenics. Sci many scientists, professional bioethicists, many patient advocates, these are not people who are ignorant of the history of eugenics by any means. They simply choose to think of eugenics as a long-ago mistake, now safely distant from our own lives, kind of like the crazy ant in the attic. In a book called From Chance to Choice, Genetics and Justice, bioethicists Alan Buchanan, Dan Brock, Norman Daniels, and Daniel Wickler reference two types of eugenics history. The official story which they describe as, quote, racist, reactionary thinkers and politicians from Darwin to Hitler, and the so-called real story, 
of the heterogeneous group that supported eugenics, often for very different reasons. The real story, they say, is less tractable, less teachable, and harder to mine for bioethical insights. Attempts to draw lessons from this history, they argue, require great caution. Why is this the case? Why is the real history of eugenics, drawing lessons from it, require great caution? Well, I think it's because so many of the assumptions and principles of contemporary bioethics rely on believing only the official story of eugenics, for it has a redemptive conclusion of reason triumphing over prejudice and in a vow never again to repeat our horrible mistakes. The real story of eugenics, on, by contrast, is far more complicated. It's also far more likely to unnerve us when we consider its implications. Perhaps this is why expositors of the new eugenics frequently talk about the shadow of the old eugenics before reassuring people that the new eugenics is nothing like the old. The history of eugenics, or at least the real history of eugenics, with its many uncomfortable truths, doesn't, I think, cast a shadow. It casts light on our current situation, or at least it should. Instead, enthusiasts of the new eugenics promise to, quote, avoid the errors and abuses associated with eugenics and to harness our burgeoning genetic powers to help create a more just and humane society. Reprehensible as much of the eugenic program was, the authors of From Chance to Choice tell us, there's something unobjectionable and perhaps even morally required in the part of its motivation that sought to endure, endow future generations with genes that might enable their lives to go better. We need not abandon this motivation if we can pursue it justly. Of course, the old eugenics also sought the laudable yet amorphous goal of a just and humane society. But the pursuit of these two principles is, of course, entirely reliant on one's notions of what is just and what is humane. It's clear that there are few techniques in our new genetic arsenal that are not humane under the standards of the new eugenics, so long as they lead to what we as a society seem to want, which are children unmarked by disability or disease, worthwhile lives. The example of testing for Down syndrome is, I think, instructive here. Between 80 and 90% of women who find out that they are carrying a child with Down syndrome, which can be tested using amniocentesis during pregnancy, choose to abort. This rate has been steadily increasing at the same time that new developments in medicine have nearly doubled the lifespan of people who have Down syndrome and greatly improved their quality of life. Raina Rapp's book about the social impact of amniocentesis offers some clues about the cultural pressure behind this rising rate of so-called therapeutic abortion. Women who choose to have what Rapp calls the unexpected baby, a child with Down syndrome or another genetic abnormality, she says, report with searing uniformity the profoundly negative responses of the medical personnel around them. One doctor told a woman, the only blessing is that they don't tend to live very long. This fall, the Wall Street Journal reported on a study that was conducted by a Harvard medical student who asked 1,000 women the following question. How were you told that your child had Down syndrome? Here's what he found. One woman said that after her baby was born in 2000, the doctor flat out told my husband that this could have been prevented at an earlier stage. Of 141 women who learned through prenatal testing, many said they felt urged to terminate the pregnancies. One said that after learning her amniocentesis results, the doctor told her, your child will never be able to read, write, or count change. As Duke University professor Amy Laura Hall has asked, what if Carrie Buck, the plaintiff in the 1927 Buck versus Bell eugenic sterilization case, instead of being deemed an imbecile, which is what Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. called her, 
instead had been pregnant with the child that had Down syndrome. What democratic calculus of worth, as Hall describes it, would we make today regarding her reproductive responsibilities? What cultural message would she receive from the medical establishment and from her peers about her responsibilities to bring into the world a worthwhile life? I think with testing for Down syndrome, we see the two principles of the new eugenics, choice and prevention, thrown into high relief. We also, unfortunately, see their popularity. A focus group conducted by the Genetics and Public Policy Foundation recently found strong support for genetic testing for genetic diseases that cause childhood suffering. Participants who believe that this use is morally appropriate typically stated that preventing the suffering of a child is a laudable goal. They describe genetic disease as a substantial burden for children, for families, and for communities. One focus group participant said, you have a responsibility to bring a child into the world with a certain quality of life. More than half of the respondents to the survey agreed with the following statement. Parents ought to do everything technologically possible to prevent their child from suffering, including using reproductive genetic technologies. Now, at a recent dinner party, the opinion writer uh, who published her piece in the Washington Post, the one with a Down syndrome child, described being seated next to what she very um, politely uh, referred to as the director of an Ivy League ethics program. So those of you here who might be directors of Ivy League ethics programs who attended dinner parties, um, he declared at this dinner party that prospective parents have a moral obligation to undergo prenatal testing and to terminate their pregnancy to avoid bringing forth a child with a disability because it was immoral to subject a child to the kind of suffering he or she would have to endure. The bioethics elite is not the only group that holds such views. The majority of respondents in the survey I mentioned earlier that supported the ideas that parents have a responsibility to bring a child into the world with a certain quality of life earned under $25,000 a year and had no college education. The new eugenics has in fact accomplished something that the old could only dream of. It's been so persuasive and we've internalized its message so thoroughly that we don't even need the state to impose it. We'll do it ourselves. Now perhaps the simplest argument against the new eugenics, and one that I assume many people will disagree with, is that it misses the point of childbearing and child rearing. In the effort to exercise their own individual right to a disease-free child, or a child free from obesity, depression, homosexuality, or any number of other traits which, for which we might one day have accurate tests, parents who engage in such eugenic practices commit a deep offense against individuality. By narrowing the range of possibilities before a child is even born, even in the pursuit of health and happiness for that child, parents fundamentally alter their relationship with the child. The child ceases to be a gift and becomes instead a choice one that can be rejected, like a defective product if it doesn't suit. In declaring that parents have the right, or even today, the moral obligation to do this for their children, a declaration we are, in fact, well on our way to accepting as a society, we risk permanently altering not only what it means to be human, but also what it means to be a family. So what kind of argument can you devise against the new eugenics? How can we avoid the excesses of our new genetic powers? Thus far, the most frequently proffered solution has been the one embraced by bioethicists themselves. They tell us that if we encourage progressive social policies and awareness and sensitivity about difference and disability, the inequalities and abuses that mark the old eugenics will not arise in the new one. This is, for lack of a better phrase, Pollyanna-ish in the extreme. 
It also fails to account for the objections of that portion of the population, which for traditional religious or otherwise reasons, does not share the progressive view of bioethicists. There isn't much interest in listening to these objections among the liberal elite. After all, minority views only matter if the minority in question is deemed victimized, which I can tell you, conservative opponents of the new eugenics are not. Noting the recent breakthroughs in embryonic stem cell research, for example, that would allow for the development of stem cell lines without destroying embryos, a recent editorial in the New York Times downplayed the significance and urged continuation of embryo destruction for research. Here's how they put it. It would be foolish to abandon proven techniques just to meet the ethical objections of a minority. Um, the ethical objections of a minority have a long history in this country, and, and uh, it was sort of jarring to read that in the editorial page of the New York Times. Early evidence, though, suggests that this view will fail to protect those for whom it was ostensibly devised. In a book called The Future of the Disabled in a Liberal Society, Hans Reinders, a Dutch researcher, concluded the following. Assuming that disabled people will always be among us and that the proliferation of genetic testing will strengthen the perception that the prevention of disability is a matter of responsible reproductive behavior and that society is therefore entitled to hold people responsible for having a disabled child, it is not unlikely that political support for the provision of special needs will erode. As for the political protections championed by the new eugenicists, he believes those are also useless. He says, the benefits bestowed by love and friendship are consequential rather than conditional, which explains why human life that is constituted by these relationships is appropriately experienced as a gift. A society that accepts responsibility for dependent others, such as the mentally disabled, will do so because there are sufficient people who accept this account as true. As well, the supposed ethical firewall that things such as non-directive genetic counseling and respect for individual choice have constructed, crumbles when you get into the realm of culture. Choice is fine as long as you make the culturally acceptable choice, which in the case of a genetically compromised child these days is not to have it. As the mother of the Down syndrome child noted in the post, there are many pro-choicers who, while paying obeisance to the rights of people with disabilities, want at the same time to preserve their right to ensure that no one with disabilities will be born into their own families. In addition, I think we need to look at how the accumulation of individual choices has an impact on society as a whole. The dramatically skewed ratio of men to women in countries such as India and China that sex selection practices have fostered is the clearest example of this. But the disappearance of people with Down syndrome, dwarfism, or any number of other genetic conditions is another. Avatars of the new eugenics, of course, rarely mention these things, since the elimination of disability is, from their perspective, precisely the point. But consider, if you will, an environmental analogy, not something you usually hear a conservative making, but here goes. If every single adult in the United States decided to drive a huge gas-guzzling SUV, that would be, for each of them, a private individual choice in the same way that choosing to abort a child with Down syndrome is. But such a choice would also have a significant impact on the quality of life for everyone in society, in terms of pollution and in terms of our use of natural resources. So too, I think, does our attempt to eliminate the disabled before they are even born. Conservatives, by contrast, often make slippery slope arguments about our use of these technologies, usually with the knowledge that they will be accused of never seeing a slope that isn't slipping into one abomination or another. Conservatives have called for the erection of bulwarks against the greatest excesses of the new eugenics, 
bans on techniques such as human cloning, bans on federal funding of embryonic stem cell research, calls for greater regulation of the fertility industry, and the like. By putting such protections in place, the reasoning goes, we will perhaps think twice before playing God. Not surprisingly, liberal bioethicists have little patience for this. As the authors of From Chance to Choice put it bluntly, the admonition not to play God is useless, except as a general warning against hubris. And yet it is the conservative position that is more in line with the concerns of average Americans. A 2002 survey by the Genetics and Public Policy Center found that when asked what worried them most about the new reproductive technologies, 36% feared that they would be used for the wrong purposes, and an additional 35% feared that it was playing God. Now, the most thoughtful conservatives have tried to craft substantive arguments against the new eugenics by drawing bright lines between therapy and enhancement. This line, I think, is impossible to hold. Another survey that the Genetics and Public Policy Center conducted noted that levels of support for genetic testing for non-health-related purposes, that is, for traits such as intelligence or strength, and this is, these are their words, were not as low as one might expect. In fact, more than one in four Americans now say that they approve or strongly approve of using hypothetical genetic tests for intelligence or strength, and close to 40% thought it was appropriate to use pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to choose the sex of a child. Americans might be worried about playing God on a large scale, but on the individual level, there's a growing acceptance that they have the right to do just that. Another group has pinned its hopes on science itself. Like the early geneticists who challenged the validity of the science of eugenics, this argument goes, the more we learn about the unintended consequences of our new powers, the more humility we will exercise in using them. I'm not so sure. Science is rigorously amoral, and you could make an argument as to why that should be. And if it's not amoral, it's at least an absentee landlord in its own moral house. Nowadays, science, science can keep its difficult ethical dilemmas carefully cordoned off for cadres of professional bioethicists and institutional review boards to solve. It's easier that way. I think placing our hopes on science to self-regulate would be a poor strategy. So what does this mean for any of us who are concerned about the new eugenics? There are a few glimmers of hope for reversing or at least slowing the trend toward the new eugenics. The Genetics and Public Policy Survey I mentioned early found that 70% of the people surveyed agreed or strongly agreed with the statement, the ability to control human reproduction will lead to treating children like products. This is, of course, hardly a promising basis for the just society our optimistic bioethicists are predicting for us, particularly a society that already treats most consumer products as expendable. But I am, in the end, more pessimistic than optimistic. If the old eugenics movement was, quote, a creature of its time, as the authors of From Chance to Choice put it, so is our new eugenics. Here are some of its hallmarks. An emphasis on the necessity of choice and prevention, two very powerful ideas in contemporary American culture. Broad claims for the new eugenics power to encourage justice and health for all people, also powerfully appealing to Americans an emphasis on the responsibilities of parenthood, ironically at a time when people are having fewer children, and the enthusiastic embrace of euphemisms for what are, in essence, eugenic practices. Phrases such as family balancing for sex selection, selective reduction, therapeutic abortion, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. I think these euphemisms allow us the conceit of thinking that we have morally evolved from the days of the old eugenics, 
yet still give us the unrestrained power to do far more than the old eugenics ever imagined possible. But I think the main cause for pessimism lies in, in what you see in the polling data. The new eugenics, like the old, is popular. And unless we can find a plausible way to reverse this trend, we'll not have success combating the new eugenics. So if we are to have any success, I think we do have to engage on three uh, battlegrounds. Um, well, of the three battlegrounds, scientific, political, and culture, I think political and culture are going to be the ones to, to engage on. You can do this not by inciting fears about a future brave new world, but by illuminating the choices and their consequences that we've already become used to. The cultural pressure to test and abort children with genetic defects the ease with which we are moving towards acceptance of enhancement, not merely therapy, and the lack of reflection about what these choices say about our society's moral priorities and about their potential long-term effects. I think these arguments are best made in the cultural arena rather than the political or scientific. Well, to close, I, I meant to bring the book with me, but I didn't. But um, the book From Chance to Choice, which is the sort of liberal bioethics uh, textbook of, of its day, uh, used all over the country, it's ironic or perhaps perverse that these optimistic authors chose a sculpture by Rodin to illustrate the jacket of their book. The, the sculpture is La Catridal, and he, Rodin completed it in 1908. It shows two hands arcing towards each other, not touching, looking as if they're molding something. And it's similar to other work that Rodin did in this period when he experimented with the fragmentation of the human form. Critics have likened his torso of a man falling sculpture, for example, to the figures of the damned in Michelangelo's Last Judgment in the Sistine Chapel. These are images of deliberate imperfection and incompleteness, and Rodin described the work as follows. Beauty is like God. A fragment of beauty is complete. What these sculptures suggest to the viewer is that even the incomplete and imperfect nevertheless have an intrinsic worth and beauty. The poet Rainier Marie Rilke's description of La Catridal is even more suggestive. He said, there is a history of hands. They have their own culture, their particular beauty. One concedes to them the right of their own development, their own needs, feelings, caprices, and tenderness. Would that we as a society could adopt a similar view about the profound privilege we have of creating and nurturing human life. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Rosen, for a very rich reflection on a very important subject. Uh, Dr. Rosen is an editor, as I mentioned before, of a, a journal, so she's no doubt quite used to and, and, and probably enjoys extended conversation about the ideas and arguments in a paper. Uh, today it's her paper, and we have this opportunity to examine. Uh, we have a tradition in the Madison program of inviting uh, students, graduate students and undergraduate students, whether from Princeton or elsewhere, to ask the first questions. So uh, let me uh, open it up to a student. Any questions? Yes, sir.
syndrome is very debilitating psychologically on the parents, and just economically, you're, you're funding this child to grow up, yet there's no hope, really, that they can do the basic. Is there a line you can do, which isn't too far on one side, but allows for that? Well, I think... Um, down syndrome is a good illustration of the challenge because actually the range of how it presents in children is vast. You, there are children who go to college who have Down syndrome. The average life expectancy is now 50 years old or a little bit lower than that. It used to be 25 years old. So I think, um, and there, there are also in the case of cystic fibrosis, for example, there was a scandal a few years back about a bunch of women who were tested for cystic fibrosis and, found, and were told, given a positive result. They, most of them chose to abort the child. And it turns out that it was not correct. The test was incorrect. And the same thing, though. There are people with cystic fibrosis who live much more rich lives and others who, of course, are facing hospitalization and suffering from the very beginning. So the fact that these diseases all present with a range, I think, actually is an argument against the sort of knee-jerk reaction of let's get rid of the kid because it's imperfect. Um, and I think any, anyone who knows someone with Down syndrome, as I'm sure many of us in this room do, although fewer of us will in the years to come, would say that these are human beings who've enriched our lives. And to not to downplay the economic challenge, which exists, but when you start getting into instrumental uh, economic uh, cost-benefit analysis with children, who'd have them? I mean, they're really expensive. <laughs> so, but I, I hope that answers your question. I, I just would say there, you can't draw the line. We have drawn the line. It's, it's, if you test positive, you don't have the baby, even if this is a child that might live to be 50 years old. Well, that's a, it's a very good question for this reason. Oh, the, what, what she asks is, um, you know, the SUV, the gas-guzzling SUV analogy, for which we have very clear measures based on pollution and our use of, you know, natural resources. I, I said, you know, aren't we making a similar choice without thinking of the social consequences when we say, you know, you should abort a, a child that has any genetic defect? Um, here's what I would say, is that a society with, with either very few people with disabilities or only a handful is a, is a different society um, just in, in quality and in terms of how we see human life. Now, you can't measure that. I don't think you can, but think about it this way, perhaps. We're all going to be, if we, if we look at the projections for longevity these days and including the projections for how many of us will one day suffer from forms of dementia, we will all be disabled one day. So then you have to start looking at the later end of life. We're now looking at the beginning, but these questions must also be asked about the later end of life. So what I would say is, no, I don't have a formula. I don't have a measurement in the same way that we measure pollution. But all I'm throwing out there for consideration is we, none of us, I think, can say that it won't change society, it won't change our views of disability, of weakness, and of dependence. Uh, he's a ringer. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, I 
so then uh, why doesn't the analogy work for what I would call a genetic vaccine um, that could also eliminate this ability? Because polio, polio was not a uh, old people, but polio had wonderful medical effects. Right. Uh, I guess the answer to that would be when you cure polio with a vaccine, you cure one person. When you manipulate genetically your, your child, you're also manipulating your grandchild, your great-grandchild. We've had this discussion, and you don't agree with me. <laughs> but I would say it's, it's, it's different than just vaccinating one individual. You're making a choice about the future individuality and opportunities for more than just even your own child. You're making them for future generations. Yes, but not permanent ones. We could, if polio reemerged, we could all take the vaccine again. But if if you make a genetic change, how you now you've told me you can actually think about reversing those. So if that's the case, that, but I would say, for me, it's not a matter of whether you can reverse it or not. It's a matter that you're making that choice in the first place to manipulate a child, which which already puts you on one path rather than another. Yes, in the back. Yes, sir. You. No. Um, I visited China uh, two summers ago. Uh, they absolutely have eugenic, a one-child eugenic um, uh, policy. So you'd call this negative eugenics because there, there are penalties to having more than the one child because of the fears of overpopulation. Um, one outset, or one, one um, problem with that policy beyond the moral questions, which are vast, is uh, it has you see the sex selection ratio changing dramatically there as well. And that's because in China, people want sons. Um, these, in, for, for all of the same calculations, you know, for economic calculations, for a number of reasons, sons are valued. So there are a lot more men than women in China now, especially in the rural regions. Um, they're going to be facing a big problem. Now, there are two theories as to what will happen. Um, one theory is, you know, you have hundreds of thousands of men who have no potential spouses. You know, what do you call that? Well, some people call it an army. Uh, <laughs> Other people say, well, no, this will just make women more desirable because they'll have all this, you know, all, all these men to choose from who will all be begging for their favors. I think that works in the context of a liberal democracy that's undergone a feminist revolution, but in a society that's still fairly traditional and patriarchal, I'm not sure that would work. But, yes, China practices eugenics, and no, I, I don't approve at all of what they're doing there.
No, it's a very, it's a very good point, and I, I agree with what you said. Um, I think it's one of the things about this debate that isn't often raised, um, but it's true that if you get into the technicalities, and, and if you talk to most people who are facing these decisions, which none of us should take lightly, I mean, the, these are very difficult choices people are making. They have a number of different reasons for making them. And when it comes to actually manipulating genes to improve a child, um, I know from someone that Actually, if you can identify certain asthma genes, you could get rid of those genes as well. You know, so you could have the child that doesn't have the, the risk. Um, but this leads to another question, which is how, how much should a parent be allowed to impose their own definition of individuality or happiness or their own expectations um, in a permanent way? I mean, all of us can think of something that our parents said that we, you know, oh, my God, never will I do this to my own children. I would, and now sometimes people find they end up doing that anyway. But, you know, you can escape certain things. You can't escape these genetic choices that your parents make for you. So I think, um, yes, Professor Singer, elephant in the room, is that who you're referencing? Um, it's, it's, I think you're quite right. Um, No, actually, my personal views on amniocentesis and, and therapeutic abortion I'll keep to myself. What I, what I was wanting us all to think about, though, is what the individual choice, which is protected now by law and, and also by social convention. At this point, I think we can say that, that you know, Americans are raised with the expectation that they have the right to make this choice. And, and you know, I think for anyone who's interested in bioethics issues, just watch the next 25 years, the Supreme Court is going to have to be tackling these, way, these issues in the same way they tackled abortion in 73. Right. Um, so my personal views, I'll leave out of it. Um, what I want us to think about, though, is what the accumulation of these individual choices will mean for society. Um, why can't we step back and say, now you might step back and look at those larger choices and say, this is great. We have a society with fewer disabled people. You know, GDP is up. We don't have to worry about, you know, so you could make that positive argument. But that positive argument can only be made if you accept the moral choice of mani the manipulation, and that's what I'm not eager to see us do wholesale. But you make the moral choice yourself. Mm-hmm. The state? The state, no. No, I, I, wouldn't, I would say no. In fact, this is, this is one of the interesting things about the new eugenics compared to the old. Even people such as myself who have a lot of concern about the new eugenics are not eager to see the state get involved on this on either end, either to, to bar things or to uh, encourage things. And that's in part because I think, at least in the way the culture works now, we need to make arguments in the elected political realm and in the cultural realm. These are the only things that are going to persuade. Um, you know, we can elect people to Congress who, who represent our views one way or the other. Um, and we can try to make our arguments in the public sphere. But I would not want to see our government ever, you know, go down that path of saying no amniocentesis. And it wouldn't happen anyway. I mean, it's just the, there's too much public support for it. Oh, he asked, he's saying, I'm saying that it's morally wrong to abort a child with Down syndrome. Again, I will keep my personal views on this 
separate. What I'm what I am saying though is that as a society, we have made the choice to abort children with Down syndrome. Eighty to ninety percent of women make that choice. So what I'm asking us to do is look at where we already are. This isn't the future. This is today. We're a society that aborts children that are not considered or uh, capable of a worthwhile life. What is? Go ahead. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, he, he mentioned that uh, people might advocate, you know, not, not using therapeutic abortion um, for society, but themselves then choose to use it. I think that's, you know, that's the hypocrisy that is, that is rampant because, you know, we're human beings. Um, I guess what I'm urging is that we think about the choice we've made because I, one of the things that Americans tend to do with new technologies is – the iPod is not the appropriate thing, although walking around this campus, everyone is wired. It's bizarre. It's just, I just point that out. Um, the, uh, but, you know, we, we get a new technology. We're so excited about it. And this, I think, holds true for many of the reproductive technologies. Wow, look at what we can do, you know, shiny object, shiny new object. And we don't pause to think about the consequences of the choices that those technologies encourage us to make. And so I guess that's what I'm urging um, that we do. And absolutely, there's a lot of hypocrisy on both sides of this debate. I would certainly agree with that. Uh, let's see. I think you're next. Um, I want to ask you a question, but I'll begin to ask a question. Oh, good. <laughs> It's the same, I think. Well, the even given, well, but recognizing that, that there's a continuum of when you make contacts, mm -hmm. you, may, you may get contacts from somebody who's given birth to a disabled child. Do you have commitment there? If you've committed to adopting the, the child. Oh well, so you, well, well. What you're what you're actually the, the interesting thing about this this um, uh, situation is that now we're all in that position, aren't we, to some extent, because we can all get certain tests done, 
So if you have the disabled child, you don't have to either adopt it or give birth to it yourself. So in fact, perhaps it levels that, that the, the differences are, are narrowing in that regard because just as adoptive parents have a certain range of choices of children who've been given up for adoption and they can pick and choose among them and, and anyone who's read the ads of people who are trying to adopt, they want a, you know, a girl between these certain ages with, you know, this ethnic background. I mean, this, this happens. Now, now we have more choice with the children that we conceive naturally as well. Does that answer your question? I mean, I think actually they're they're more well, similar. Yes, that, yeah. Yeah, they're not 100% accurate tests. It's for cystic fibrosis or for Downs, yeah. It's true. No, because you're not creating a life and then manipulating it to suit your taste. You're making a decision that, in the abstract, this is, this is a decision that's entirely made in the abstract, which is, okay, we want to have a kid, but we find that if we do, the kid will likely have Tay-Sachs, although Tay-Sachs is still only one in four, even when both parents are carriers. But still, the decision is made, you know, for whatever reason. I know people who have made that decision because they oppose abortion, and so even though they would, and, and so they wouldn't do IVF, even though they could do IVF, do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and select an embryo that wasn't a carrier, they choose not to have children at all for different moral reasons. But I would not call that choice unethical. I mean, that, the only people who would call that unethical are people who believe that, that you know, regardless of, um, well, I mean, I guess if you're a devout Catholic, that would be an unethical choice. I don't happen to be a devout Catholic, but that is, that is, there is a moral argument as to why even that choice would be unethical. That's not the argument I'm making, however, but that's certainly... People have made that argument. Yes, sir. Uh, I just wanted to take a little bit We have a speaker here in March, Peter Augustine Gilbert, who is the chairman of the Department of Government of Notre Dame. And he made an interesting, uh, he had an interesting thesis that he felt that in the future there could well be a solution People who are pro-life? Yes. So, are you aware of that? No, no.
no, it's an intriguing argument. I actually think um, it's more likely that we're going to see the abortion debate be uh, transformed by the scientific advances, you know, as we push the age of viability back in pregnancy so that, you know, we're now, what, into the second trimester, you can have some kids survive and, you know, work on artificial wombs, which is still on the horizon, but some of it's being done. I mean, you could – most people who work on artificial wombs say we're going to, that barrier is going to hit one day. Viability and artificial wombs are going to meet. And then what about abortion, which well, is based on a trimester system of viability? Well, it really wasn't about abortion. It was more that, you know, we, we genetically can control, have more perfect children, less problems, better, you know, economics, and all that. The polling data suggests that's true, that, that even people who are against abortion will nevertheless take advantage of these technologies. Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm a complete pessimist. I mean, I'm on the losing side of history. You heard it here first. I mean, this, this is going, the train has left the station. It's going, can I throw one more metaphor in there? <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that is the direction we're headed. Well, this is there. Yeah, there was a, there was a, a case in Maryland, um, a deaf lesbian couple who selected used IVF and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to select an embryo that would have hereditary deafness, and this was a big brouhaha among bioethicists. And as in every bioethics question, people came down on both sides. There was no no uh, answer. I mean, I think I think that for now, that's not that's not the future because that's a, these. Communities are going to. There will always be people who make that choice, just like there will always be people who will never vaccinate their children. I mean, this, this is. There will, but they tend to be in the minority. Um, however, it it is a perfect illustration of the ethical challenge that we'll all face, which is once you say you can choose, how do you say that their choice is wrong? Because deafness is not considered a disability among the capital D deaf community. It is not a disability. They have their own language. They, it's a rich culture. Um, so, you know, you'll see even more interesting, I think, uh, examples of that as we go along. Now, whether that will become the ma majority that people will choose, you know, hey, I like a certain movie star, I want my kid to look or act, like, unlikely. But certainly, I think it brings us back to looking at the basic ethical question behind it. In the back. This is just a clarification. Uh, I, perhaps I did not understand the, the comment earlier about No, no, I'm not. And I'm not Catholic, so I'm not speaking. I, 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 what I was suggesting, though, is that there, there is, if you belong to a community, whether religious or otherwise, that believes that you have a duty to procreate once you're married. Um, then the decision that, that the gentleman mentioned, which is never to procreate, would violate that principle. That's all I'm saying. Now, it's not just Catholics who have that, and I know that it's not, you know, I'm not going to get into Catholic theology because I don't know enough about it. But, <laughs> but that, does that clarify? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he was saying, even though you're both able to bring a child into the world, you decide you don't want to do that, and so you use some form of contraception to prevent that from happening. That would violate the principles of certain communities. Yeah, the Catholic position would be that you should not use contraception. Right. But, but natural means to not conceive, given right. the fact that it's a risk, it's, it's, it would be, I think, a, a tangible. 
kind of right. That, well, for a Catholic couple, that would be the decision to make. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. One more. Is that all right? No, I, I hope that they will, actually. I hope the phrase hedonistic treadmill becomes part of, you know, everyday conversation because there are these wonderful, um, there's this very interesting uh, stuff coming out of the, the happiness research. One of the other things that does not, over a lifespan, increase happiness is having children. It actually doesn't increase your level of happiness. It, it, people think it will in the abstract when, when they're asked before they have kids, oh, yes, it's going to make my life so much richer, so much happier. But it doesn't in the end when they follow through, you know. So I think, I, I think this is a, it's, it's a, it would be very interesting to bring some of that into this debate because the bioethicists and, and, and those of us, you know, squabbling with them are all talking about things like worthwhile life and, and quality of life. But what is quality of life? I mean, happiness research suggests it's not as simple as we think it is. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good opportunity to bring that into the discussion. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, Dr. Rosen. It was terrific to have the, the time for the, for the discussion. Uh, I, before we uh, repair to the upstairs for our, our after-lecture uh, reception with uh, Christine Rosen, I'd like to just uh, hold your attention for another minute or two to, to mention upcoming uh, events of the Madison program. Uh, we have one, one more event before the fall break uh, of the university on October 25th, which is Tuesday. We are co-sponsoring with several other programs here at Princeton um, a, uh, a panel discussion. It's titled 60 Years Later, Critical Books of the 20th Century. This is part four. We've been at this for a while. And part four is E.H. Carr's The 20 Years Crisis, 1919 to 1939, a classic book. Uh, the speakers will include Michael Cox of the London School of Economics, Thomas Christensen right here at Princeton, Harold James, a historian here at Princeton University, uh, and moderated by John Eikenberry. It will be at 4.30 in Bowl 1 of Robertson Hall in the Woodrow Wilson School building. Uh, and then after the fall break, on Wednesday, November 9th, we're, we will have with us uh, the uh, new editor of First Things, which is one of the nation's uh, more influential and, and largest circulation intellectual journals. Uh, we will have uh, uh, Jody Bottom here speaking on the, uh, the intriguing topic, death and politics. Uh, it, that reminds me, we have a new uh, uh, little gizmo on our website, for those of you who visit our website, where if you go to our events page, uh, when we have a fuller description of what the speaker will be speaking about, 
we have a little link there called description. Just click on it, and you can, you can read all about it. Uh, now, if you would also consider, if you haven't already, giving us your email address uh, by signing a, uh, a piece of paper uh, upstairs, we will then put you on our events mailing list so you'll get regular uh, attention from us informing you of what our upcoming events will be. Well, thank you very much for being with us today, and we'll see you upstairs. Thank you.